It's up for debate on KLJXLP Flagstaff, KJAC 107.1. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Every single Wednesday, we have a special guest in the booth. Sean Clark, the Candid Clark, comes on to talk a lot of sports, things that he's writing about on his uh, on his website, The Candid Clark, different things like that. So welcome to the show, Sean. How are you doing today? Oh, man, this is awesome. We have Champions League action in soccer, NFL free agency, and March Madness just around the corner, Friday through Monday. None of our lives are not going to be very productive as we're just going to sit around watching a grand total of 48 basketball games in a span of four days. It's going to be incredible. Let's talk about it. Yeah, I am so excited for March Madness. We had Selection Sunday this Sunday, and we got a pretty interesting bracket out of it. I want to look at this first round uh, because I already talked about and broke down uh, the bracket. I want to talk about the the games that are must-watch games here in the first round. Sean, what do you think is a must-watch game uh, for the first round? So, 7 versus 10 seed matches are always very interesting because they're very evenly matched. Along with the 8 and 9, they're usually very evenly matched games, for the most part. Now, obviously, you get your blowouts in them, but usually they're very evenly matched games, and they can be tough to pick. And I think in this first round, I'll, I'll obviously we can talk about other games later, but I'll focus on the best 7-10 match, and that's Connecticut versus Maryland. Now, we did talk on the last show as we were previewing the Big East tournament about how Connecticut was a dangerous team. James Boonice comes back, and obviously R.J. Cole is a very good facilitator and shot creator himself. Connecticut lost in the Big East tournament semifinals in a 59-56 game against the Creighton Blue Jays and lost. They are a seventh seed. The last time they were a seventh seed was when they won the national title in 2014. They are taking on the Maryland Terrapins, who... Just absolutely wrecked Michigan State twice in the last couple weeks. Made it to the tournament as a 10 seed. And there are certain people that think that Maryland should not have been the tournament. I disagree. Maryland is a good basketball team. Eric Isla and Aaron Wiggins are a fantastic guard duo. And they're going to go up against RJ Cole and James Boone. It's, it's going to be a just a shootout between these four players. And whichever duo can get the better of the other is going to come out on top in this game. And I think Maryland does Ever so slow. I think Eric Isla is a tremendous guard. He reminds me of Mel. Remember Melo Trimble? He basically is a very similar. He doesn't have, he even has the same jersey number as Melo Trimble. And I think that he will hit a late jumper, beat UConn in what is going to be one of the most exciting games in the round of 64. Connecticut, Maryland is a game to watch. And I'll tell you what, filling out this bracket, I spent 30 minutes picking this game because I didn't know what who to pick. It was brutal. I, I'm like, you know what? I need to pick, I need to just skip this. For now, because this is hard to pick. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. I think this is maybe the best matchup of the first round. Connecticut is a team, and, and and the matchup between these teams is is really what I like, uh, especially about this matchup, is it is going to be so guard heavy. It is going to be who can keep up with the other group of guards. I mean, like you said, Eric Ayala and Aaron Wiggins are just so talented for Maryland. And then for Connecticut, RJ Cole has been playing such good basketball he went down with a little bit of an injury in the Big East uh, game against Creighton. Uh, kind of went down with a with a head injury. He should be fine for the game, 
Uh, I haven't heard anything bad about his status, but I mean, Connecticut is a team that could have very well gone on and won the Big East, uh, if not for R.J. Cole going down, uh, hitting his head on the on the on the court. But this is a a matchup that is just going to be so guard heavy. I mean, you're not going to see too much from the big men other than rebounding, uh, trying to get positioning for their guards. A lot of screens. Uh, I think this is a, a tremendous matchup. Uh, another matchup that I think is a must-watch here in the first round is a matchup between Colorado and Georgetown. Now, this is a matchup that we've talked a lot about out, off the air, Sean, but Colorado's a team. They're a very talented team. Uh, McKinley Wright has played very, very well this year, but they struggled against Oregon State in the Pac-12 championship. And Georgetown is a team that really struggled throughout the, the regular season, but come tournament time, they really found their form. Patrick Ewing coaching this team. I mean, they won the Big East, earned their way into the tournament. Now they have a matchup, a good 5-12 matchup. I'm really excited to see how this game goes down. Yeah, so on the Ken Clark, uh, this will be published around 4 p.m. today or uh, 4 p.m. Pacific time. Johnny Crane actually wrote about the Georgetown Hoyas because, you know, let's just say they kind of surprised a lot of people when they won the Big the Big East tournament. They have two legit scores in Javon Blair and Jamarco Pickett, but a freshman guard, Dante Harris, was very good against Villanova in the win, and you also had Chudir Blair. And with the with the talent that Georgetown had with the, with the fantastic coaching of Patrick Ewing, Georgetown was able to win four games in four days to win the Big East tournament. Now, obviously, they do have about a week off in between games, so they are going to cool down a little bit. Now, here's on, besides their good free throw shooting, although they did struggle a little bit in the Big East tournament final against Creighton, Georgetown is a dependable free throw shooting team, and they also are speedy, and they're very well disciplined. But here's why I think they'll beat Colorado. Tad Boyle has been the coach of Colorado since I started watching college basketball. I have never... I cannot remember a time where Tad Boyle wasn't the head coach of Colorado Buffaloes. And Colorado has been a respectable program. But I'll tell you what, Cade, as, as a Colorado native, and obviously you are too, we have seen Colorado constantly underperform in March Madness. Constantly. Colorado hasn't won an NCAA tournament game in over a decade. And, and Tad Boyle has been winless over the past decade. I remember there was a game where he lost by 30 points to Pitt in a game that should have been, was evenly matched on paper. The problem with Tad Boyle in March Madness is that he overthinks things, and Colorado gets way too complicated passing-wise. They start turning the ball over, and their shot selection is not the best, let's just say. I don't trust Tad Boyle's coaching. I trust Patrick Ewing's because he's able to get the most out of his players, even though... Most of Georgetown leading scorers last year, including Mac McClung, who's a star on Texas Tech, left. Patrick Ewing is a much better coach in this matchup, and that's why I have Georgetown coming out on top in this thrilling round of 64 matches. It's still going to be a great game, but I just think that the coaching is going to prevail in the last two minutes. Yeah, I mean, for Colorado, we haven't seen a win uh, from a Colorado program since 2012 uh, in the NCAA tournament, but... Uh, this is the highest seed they've had in a very long time uh, since longer than Tad Boyle has been here. I think this is the best team that we've seen out of Tad Boyle. I think Georgetown is hot at the right moment. They obviously came through and just beat up on Creighton, a pretty talented team uh, in the Big East Championship. So this is a very, very good game to watch. I would say keep an eye on it. 
I know we're both separate picks on it. I pick Colorado, you pick Georgetown. I think Colorado just has a little bit too much talent for Georgetown to keep up with. But I, I mean, I can see an upset of Bruin. Georgetown has been a team that has been getting very consistent defensive play, very consistent offensive play. And, I mean, Patrick Ewing is a guy who just has a wealth of basketball knowledge. You don't want to see him in the first round whatsoever. Oh, absolutely not. He is a motivator. Obviously, he was a legendary center for Georgetown in the New York Knicks. And so, of course, he walks into Madison Square Garden and leads Georgetown to victory. And Patrick Ewing has so much passion for this program. He He's put his heart and soul into it, and it was... Even though I'm a Syracuse fan, and I hate Georgetown as much as anybody, okay? I just want to make that very clear right now. I cannot stand Georgetown, but I'm being objective. We, we, we are journalists. We're analyzing things objectively. And I think that Georgetown has done so much great things in the last week that has set themselves up for this tournament appearance. And I'm excited to see what they can do. Obviously... As a Syracuse fan in a Colorado native, I really want Colorado to win this game. But it, at the same time, it would be a great story for Georgetown to win, objectively speaking. Because they were eighth in the Big East. Eighth. And now they, they, they're, in, they're a 12 seed in March Madness. It's a great story. The, Georgetown's become a, already a, one of the darlings of March Madness. And I can't wait to see what how this game unfolds. Yeah, 13-12 and 12 team making the tournament. They did have a tough regular season, but again, this is the time when it matters the most. The team that is playing the best game of basketball is the team that could end up going deep into the tournament. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the one seeds, what one seeds to trust, what one seeds not to trust. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. I will be here live. During the first segment, we talked about our must-watch games during the first round. Now me and Sean Clark are going to talk about the one seeds in the tournament. Gonzaga, Baylor, Michigan, and Illinois all come in as one seeds. And I think it's pretty well earned for all four of these teams getting the one seed. Uh, what do you think, Sean? Yeah, there wasn't really any drama on Selection Sunday when it came to the one seeds. Obviously, in Selection Sunday, the main drama is the bubble teams and and obviously who plays who. But one seeds was not up for debate. We we knew all four one seeds pretty well. I'm happy with it. Yeah, and a great show name drop there, Sean. Uh, but I want to talk about these uh, these one seeds because, I mean, like we've said, there is a ton and a ton of talent. I know one of these one seeds you have winning one of the other one seeds I have winning the tournament. And, I mean, even the Rich Report, two of the, the Rich Report writers out of the three have uh, Illinois winning. So the one seeds are pretty crazy stacked. Let's start with Gonzaga. I know you have Gonzaga winning the tournament. What do you think Gonzaga can do so well this year? They are number one in scoring. This team averages 92 points a game. By the way... A average college basketball score is like 74 to 69, and they're averaging 92 points a game. That's insane. 92 points per game. In college basketball, that's almost unheard of. Gonzaga also, by 3%, is the best field goal shooting team. Gonzaga doesn't take dumb shots. They take great shots. They have so much speed. They can kill you in transition. They can kill you from three. They can kill you with team ball. They don't really, the only ever so slight weakness is they're not the best rebounding team. 
That is the one slight thing that Gonzaga doesn't do fantastically. But literally everything else they excel at. They're really, outside of rebounding, even then, they're still a really good rebounder. They're still in the top 100 in rebounding. But there are just so many ways they can beat you. They can beat you in a track meet. Jalen Suggs is basically a track star in basketball. He, he is just explosive all before. He's super athletic. Gonzaga can beat you ugly. Gonzaga can beat you in a three-point shootout. Gonzaga can beat you in so many ways. And yes, I get Gonzaga hasn't had as good a schedule as Michigan, Illinois, and Baylor, who are in the two toughest conferences. But Gonzaga, it's not like they haven't played anybody. They beat BYU three times in their sixth seed. They also beat Kansas. Kansas is a, t is a uh, three seed. So Gonzaga has proved that they're great. And I will say this. This is just from a strictly story perspective. Gonzaga has made 21 NCAA tournaments in a row. 21. That's one of the longest streaks in all college basketball. And now they have the best chance that they maybe will ever have to win March Madness. Gonzaga has been the best team in college basketball all season long. Gonzaga is also a team that has fallen short with great teams. They've been in the lead eights. They were in the lead eight two years ago. They were in the national championship game in 2017. They lost by six points in North Carolina in the national title game. Well, it was an ugly game. And now they have their chance to win it all. And if they can win it all, they will be the first team since the 1975-76 Indiana Hoosiers to get it done. And how about this coincidence? Indiana 1976, the last team to finish a college basketball season undefeated, went 32-0. If Gonzaga runs the table and wins the tournament, they'll be 32-0. Yeah, I mean, Gonzaga is a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal team. They are so talented. Corey Kispert might be the best three-point shooter in all of college basketball. I mean, this team is well-rounded. It is a very good offensive and defensive team. I mean, we haven't seen this team really go or get knocked out of a tournament super early on since a couple of years ago, probably like... 2014 was the last time we saw them not get through the second round, uh, lost to Arizona in that game. Uh, but for Gonzaga, this is a team that is just so talented. They're going to go deep into this tournament. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't really see anybody in the West region that really puts a big, uh, a big challenge or a big test to Gonzaga. I think they have the easiest path as a one seed uh, to get out and into the Final Four. I would agree. Iowa maybe has a, has a chance to keep it competitive, but one prediction that I have for this tournament, because I have Gonzaga playing Texas in the Final Four, I don't think that Gonzaga wins a game by fewer than 15 points before the national title. Yeah, I mean, I think that Texas game, if they do match up against Texas, which I think they will, I, I think we both have that same Final Four matchup. I think Texas has the talent and the depth to be able to keep up with Gonzaga, but it all comes down to the three-point shooting. And Corey Kispert is a guy that is going to put you above in that in that category. Also, free throw shooting down the line. Who knows how consistent Texas is going to be able to get that done. But again, Texas is a team that just won the Big 12. And the Big 12, I think, is the most difficult or the toughest uh, conference in college basketball this season. Uh, to be fair, they didn't have to play Kansas in the in the semifinals, they also didn't mm -hmm. have to play Baylor. So there is a little bit of an asterisk 
But they still, but they beat Oklahoma State and they beat Texas Tech, two really good teams. A hundred percent. And I mean, to be fair to Texas, they've played Kansas two times this season, uh, knocked them out both times. I think Texas is still, uh, regardless of not being able to see those two teams, I think they're still a team that is going to be able to keep up with Gonzaga. Uh, I, I mean, I think Gonzaga is the more talented team for sure. Uh, but Texas has Matt Coleman, Andrew Jones. They've got a couple guys who can really get it done. Jericho Sims on the inside, and we still don't even know uh, what's going to go on with uh, Matt Coleman. Yes, and don't forget about Courtney Ramey. I know he didn't really show up in the Big 12 title game, but Courtney Ramey, it had, the first half of the season for Texas was a phenomenal guard. He He's really tapered off the last part of the season. Matt Coleman, Andrew Jones have picked up more in scoreline, but Jericho Sims uh, doing everything inside the paint, but if Courtney Ramey can step up and be the guard that he was the first half of the season, oh boy. Oh boy. Watch out. Well, yeah, and we also have to consider Greg Brown. Greg Brown is an NBA talent who had a little bit of a tantrum come uh, the Big 12 tournament, and his minutes were cut significantly. Who knows what his minutes are going to look at come March Madness, but he's a talented guy. He can step up and provide a lot of good uh, uh, good play. But I want to move on to the other one seeds. Let's talk about Baylor on the other side. Baylor is my winner. Um, they're in the South region. I think they're going to win the March Madness tournament facing off against Gonzaga. But for me, Baylor is, uh, they got the best trio of players on, uh, on uh, in the tournament with Masio Teague, uh, Davion Mitchell, and Jared Butler. I think they are just so talented as a three-point shooting team, one of the best three-point shooting teams in all of college. And this Baylor team has matched up and beaten some really, really tough teams. They beat Illinois early in the season. They've beaten Kansas, Texas Tech, Oklahoma State. And this Baylor team was undefeated before they ended up going through a pretty long COVID pause. Uh, they lost to Kansas a couple days after that. And then they ended up losing another time in the Big 12 tournament to Oklahoma State. I think this Baylor team can get themselves together. And if they're playing their best ball, I think that this is a team that can shoot with the best of them. Baylor is the best three-point shooting team in college basketball. It, plain and simple. You mentioned those three players. I'll also add on my favorite player on Baylor, Matthew Mayer. Matthew Mayer is a great stretch big in college basketball, and I think he is going to be the X factor if Baylor is going to make a run. I have Baylor in the Final Four, but I think Illinois gets their revenge and beats Baylor. And we'll, get to, we'll talk about Illinois in a second, but Baylor has the three-point shooting to win. My issue with Baylor is they rely a bit too much on their three-point shooting. That's my one concern and why I don't think they're going to win the national title. I think they'll get to the Final Four for sure. I, I think that the South region is pretty relatively easy for them because Ohio State's the two-seed and Arkansas is the three-seed. I don't see either of those two teams beating Baylor because those, those two teams are also three-point reliant. Baylor's better than both of them. So I think Baylor has a relatively easy road to the Final Four, but once there, I just don't think they have enough outside of their three-point shooting to get it done. That's my one concern of why I don't have them going farther than the Final Four. I mean, obviously, going to the Final Four is still great. Baylor, I don't think, has ever made the Final Four. So getting the Final Four would be tremendous for Baylor. I just don't think they're as good as Gonzaga and Illinois. Yeah, and... Let's talk a little bit about Illinois because I think uh, coming into this tournament, they are the hottest team in the country. Um, obviously, Gonzaga is undefeated, so that's kind of hard to argue that they're not a hot team. They've played great all season long, but 
for Illinois, they're playing their best basketball right now. Io DeSumo has really taken over inside of the mask. Kofi Coburn has become a great interior presence for Illinois. I mean, this is a team that can make a, a really deep tournament run. They could win the tournament uh, for, for that matter. What do you think about this Illinois team? I love this Illinois team. I don't have them winning the title. I have them losing to Gonzaga in the national title. Ayu Tasumu and Kofi Coburn are one of the best one-two duos. I, I hate to bring this comparison up, but I can't help myself. This is basically college basketball's Kobe and Shaq. You have a dominant center, and you have an electric, athletic, uh, cold-blooded shooter in Ayo Desumu. And he posed like Kobe Bryant after winning the Big Ten title. Yeah, Illinois survived the Big Ten title and won it in overtime over Ohio State. They also beat Iowa, which obviously that wasn't that wasn't easy either. Illinois has two players that can just dominate. But we talked about this guy a lot too, because we talked about Illinois beating Michigan a couple weeks ago. Trent Frazier. I think Trent Frazier is the X factor of this entire tournament. When it comes now, he's not like one like, oh, you better watch this player, but he's the X factor of the entire tournament. If Trent Frazier can play like he did against Michigan a couple weeks ago, and he can be that great third score for Illinois, good luck beating this team. Yeah. Uh, and Illinois, their gauntlet in the Midwest. Re- Listen to this. Hmm. Loyola Chicago. I wrote a, a in-depth by the numbers calling on Loyola Chicago. Loyola Chicago. I would have, I maybe would have had Loyola Chicago in the Final Four if they were in the South or the or the, not the West region, the, the uh, East region, East region, yeah, the, so many different terminators I can't even keep track at this point. But if Loyola Chicago played Michigan, or if they played Baylor, I would have had Loyola Chicago winning, because Loyola Chicago is fantastic defensively. Uh, they are the number one scoring defense in college basketball. Loyola Chicago is also also top ten in field goal percentage. Here's the problem, though. They're playing Illinois in the second round if, if Loyola Chicago can pass Georgia Tech. Illinois is simply too good. And you remember Duke-UCF a couple years ago, Cade, where UCF was inches from beating Zion and Duke? Illinois-Loyola Chicago is going to be exactly that. I think Ayutasuma is going to hit a step-back game-winning three at the buzzer, down two, to beat Loyola Chicago in what's going to be the game of the tournament. So let's say Illinois survives that. Illinois would play the Oklahoma State Cowboys most likely in the Sweet 16 with Kay Cunningham, Avery Anderson, Isak likely. That would be, I mean, obviously I'll let you talk more about that one because I know how high you're on that potential matchup. Okay, let's say Illinois beats Oklahoma State. That's already two insanely good wins right there. Then they would play the Houston Cougars or West Virginia in the lead eight. Now the thing about Houston, they are the number one defense when it comes to defense of allowing field goal percentage on top of that they have three really good guards including quentin grimes and marcus sasser houston is a phenomenal team houston has an easy road to the lead eight well let's just be real here and i think that if illinois can beat houston beat oklahoma state beat lower chicago that is they're going to be as battle tested as any team in the in the history of march madness has been for the final four because that is a gauntlet yeah, and I have a, a little bit of a problem with the Midwest region. I'm gonna we're gonna talk about that uh, in the next break. But let's move over to uh, to Michigan. That's the last team, the last number one seed we haven't talked about. I think Michigan might be the most or, or the best team out of all of these teams when they're completely put together, completely healthy. 
I was really considering picking Michigan uh, as my team to win the national championship, and that was up until Isaiah Livers hurt his foot. So I let, Isaiah Livers is not the, the number one option for this team. That's Hunter Dickinson. He really isn't the number two option either, as Mike Smith has the ball in his hands most of the time, but he is the best three-point shooter for Michigan. They are going to struggle from three-point range without without Isaiah Livers, so I, I'm not sure exactly how great this Michigan team is. I think without Isaiah Livers, they're still talented. I think without Isaiah Livers, they still have a pretty good uh, lineup and roster that they can get deep into a tournament, and I mean, their coach has done incredible things. Jawan Howard has been an absolute stud when it comes to coaching Michigan this year. I think this Michigan team can make a run, but it's it's a risk. I think this is the biggest risk in the tournament as as far as one seeds go because, I mean, who knows how they're going to be able to respond without Isaiah Livers. Yeah, here's the thing. I picked LSU with Cameron Thomas, with Darius Days, and Trenton Watford to beat Michigan, and that's even if Livers was playing. We talked, we've talked a lot about Michigan on this show. After they beat Ohio State a few weeks ago, we were very high in Michigan. But they have not looked the, the same since then. They got blasted by Illinois without A.U. Jasumu. They lost to Ohio State again in the Big Ten tournament. They just haven't looked like They also struggled a lot against Maryland. They did win that game, but that wasn't, that wasn't a pretty win for Michigan. Michigan has struggled. Hunter Dickinson has not looked the same either. He seemed to have lost some of his confidence in his demeanor. I Dr. Hunter Dickinson just hasn't looked right. And Michigan, they, they can be cold from three. That's That's been their one weakness over the last few years. They still got the national title in 2018, despite being a cold shooting team. But they just haven't looked right in the last few weeks since that big win over Ohio State in the number two versus number four game. And I just think that with Cameron Thomas, Darius Days, Trenton Watford, that they're going to just get outran by LSU. I think LSU, with their guard play and their scoring ability, will just be too much for Michigan. Michigan's good defensively, but when you have a dynamic offense that LSU has, I just don't think that LSU will let Michigan outscore them. I think Michigan loses in the round of 32, because usually there's a one seed that loses on the round of 32. Usually that's what happens, and I think LSU's a bad matchup for like for Michigan. Yeah, I'll say this much. I think if Michigan wants to make a deep tournament run, it's going to come down to two guys. Uh, and it's not the two guys that you got, you might think it is. It's not Hunter Dickinson and Franz Wagner. It's going to have to come down to Eli Brooks and Chandy Brown. The three-point shooting for this team has to keep up. They have to keep up with the production that Isaiah Livers was bringing. And if they can't keep up, they might struggle. But again, Michigan is still a very talented team. I agree they could run into a lot of trouble, and they're probably the team, the one seed that has the biggest chance of getting upset. Uh, they could face off against, like you said, LSU, a tough team, or if they make it down to the Sweet 16, Florida State could be a really tough matchup for them. That defense would be so hard to penetrate, especially without the three-point shooting that Isaiah Livers provides. We're going to take a quick break, though. When we come back, we're going to talk about the missed seedings that NCAA had this season. Stay tuned for that. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed, and I am joined by Sean Clark, the Canon Clark. Make sure you check out his website at theclanclark.com. 
or you can check him out on social media at the Cannon Clark. We are talking March Madness. We talked about the number one seeds. We talked about some must-watch games. Now, Sean, it's time for us to talk about what the Selection Sunday committee didn't do right. What did the Selection Sunday committee do wrong? And this is where I'm going to start off. I'm going to start off with this one because I've got a little bit of a bone to pick with the Selection Committee. Here we go. Here we go. This is my bone to pick because I I saw the announcements of of the seeding and I was very disappointed. I was very disappointed because there was a a particular team uh, called Oklahoma State that ended up as a four seed, which they in no way deserved... I'll tell you this much, three of about my five or six favorite teams in this whole tournament all live in the Midwest. Illinois, Oklahoma State, and Houston all live in the Midwest, and that was a little bit upsetting for me, but what's more upsetting is Oklahoma State as a four seed. If they would have come in as a three seed, I would have understood. They lost the championship game to Texas, they weren't able to beat them in that, that big matchup, But we're talking about Oklahoma State who just came off a big win to Baylor. Oklahoma State is a team that has beaten a ton of really good teams. They beat Kansas, Arkansas, Texas, Texas Tech, West Virginia, Oklahoma. I mean, Oklahoma State earned their way to a two seed. And yeah, maybe they didn't get their two seed because they lost to Texas in the Big 12 championship. But I just don't understand the... I just don't understand why... They uh, they didn't end up getting a two or three seed. Oklahoma State was was so deserving of it. Sean, what do you think about Oklahoma State coming in as a four seed? Can someone please explain to me why Arkansas and Kansas are three seeds? When Oklahoma State, how did Oklahoma State get a lower seed than West Virginia, Texas, and Kansas? And not to mention that Baylor is a number one seed. How is Oklahoma the fifth ranked Big Twelve team? How? That makes no sense. Oklahoma State beat West Virginia and Baylor in the Big 12 tournament. How did this happen? That is stupid. Also, you're going to... Oklahoma State in the South region would have been perfect. Because if you put Oklahoma State in the South region, they would play Colgate. And Oklahoma State would have a Sweet 16 matchup with Ohio State. And Oklahoma State would play Baylor in the lead eight. Wouldn't we love to see Oklahoma State and Baylor in the lead eight? But you're telling me that they have to play Illinois in the Sweet 16, and that's assuming that they can get by Liberty? That's not an easy 13 seed either? And possibly who I, because I think Oregon State's going to be Tennessee. Oregon State, that's not going to be easy either? Are you kidding me right now? (sighs) Yeah, Caden. Yeah. The one disappointing thing about this is Oklahoma State earned a two seed in my eyes. I think if you put them on the same line that Iowa's on, I think that that would be a fair... I mean, obviously, Iowa doesn't deserve a four seed. Uh, but moving Iowa down to a three seed, throwing Oklahoma State as a two seed. I mean, this team played so well against some of the most talented teams in the country. And I, I just I can't picture a team led by Cade Cunningham beating the number two team in the country just a week ago, ending up as a four seed. It Dumb. just doesn't make sense. What about you, Sean? Do you have any uh, any problems here looking at this bracket? Any uh, Anything you think you, you uh, would like to change? All right. I have, I have three things. Okay. 
Number one, I thought you were going to bring this up, but your Michigan State Spartans should not be playing tomorrow. Yeah, that's a little disappointing. Michigan State is a team that beat the number one seed Michigan, beat the number one seed Illinois, and beat the number two seed Iowa down the stretch. Coming in as a playing game doesn't make much sense. They should have been a lock. I mean, looking at teams like Rutgers, looking at teams like Virginia Tech, I mean, VCU, what are the teams that really deserve to be above a team? I mean, which one of those teams beat a top five program? Michigan State. Only Michigan State. And and they're the team that's on the outside looking in, having to play UCLA just to get into the tournament. Here's what I would have done. Put Michigan State in a lock. Put, put Virginia Tech up Michigan State. Put Michigan State up against what's Florida. Florida. Although the only problem with that is they would they would play Ohio State in second, but that's fine. We've we, we, that's fine. Who Michigan State, Ohio State, that's fine. Okay, that's fine. That would have been a really that would have been really good. Now put Michigan State up against Florida. Put Virginia Tech against UCLA. The two two teams that I can't stand. I can't stand either of those two teams. I'm not talking biasly. I'm talking about, like, I don't like their teams. I don't think either of them really deserve to be in turn. Just put them up against each other and then let BYU take out one of them in the next game. But Michigan State's in the tournament. They're going to beat UCLA, and I think Michigan State will beat BYU before losing to Texas. Here are the two other issues. Number one, why on earth is Loyola Chicago an eight seed? Really? Loyola Chicago beat Drake twice. Loyola Chicago is one of the best, is a really good team on paper. Why are they in the Midwest region against Illinois? That's not fair. Also, you're pitting them against Georgia Tech. Didn't I know Georgia Tech, it's a bit of an asterisk, but didn't Georgia Tech win the ACC tournament? Which, by the way, good job calling that, Cade. Like, good, that, like, kudos to you on that one, although you did have some help from COVID. But you're telling me that Louis Chicago has to play the ACC tournament champion and they have to play Illinois? That, that That's my worst thing. That's dumb. I'm sorry. That's dumb. You're telling me that Florida got a better seat than Louis Chicago. That's dumb. Plain and simple. Now, here is the last part of it. And this, uh, I... I don't understand this at all. Why on earth is Ar- is Arkansas above Florida State in Purdue? Really? Arkansas, a team that looked bad in the SEC tournament against LSU, and I get that Arkansas was streaky, but how many great wins does Arkansas really have compared to, I don't know, West Virginia... Purdue. Didn't Purdue have a gauntlet in the Big Ten? Yeah, Purdue, Purdue definitely had a gauntlet in the Big Ten. I'm not sure if Purdue really took too many of those. Uh, I didn't. They didn't get a win against Michigan, Illinois, or Iowa. They did get two against Ohio State, which are big-time wins. But, uh, Wisconsin yeah, as well. Better than what Arkansas did. So Purdue, who has a tough matchup against North Texas in the first round, they, they should be the three seed, and Arkansas should be a four seed, but even then, I'm not, like, I think they're better than Villanova and the other five seeds, because the five seeds are weak this season. I, I've i never seen a worse five seed field in my life, but I'm sorry, Arkansas being a three seed, that's ridiculous, especially w- above Oklahoma State, too. I will say, to be fair to, to Villanova, if they didn't lose Colin Gillespie, I think they'd be a great five seed. I think they'd be a great pick to go deep into the tournament, but again, 
Colin Gillespie being out, that's going to hurt them big time. And who knows what they're going to be able to do against Winthrop. Uh, so now we can kind of move on from that. I think uh, there's some mistakes, but generally speaking, I think the selection committee did an all right job. Uh, there weren't too many teams that were missing out on the tournament that really were super deserving. I know Belmont wanted to be in, uh, and and they were right on the edge. And Louisville as well was right on the edge. So uh, who knows? Uh, let's move forward and talk um, and talk a little bit about our sleeper teams, our Cinderella stories this year. What is the biggest sleeper team you have, uh, the team that you think could make a Sweet 16 or Elite 8 run? Ohio Bobcats, ladies and gentlemen. The Ohio Bobcats are the must-watch Cinderella team. Now, Ohio has had a tournament history of being a sleeper team. 2010, they were a 14 seed, and they blew out the Georgetown Hoyas. 2012, they were a 13 seed. They beat Trey Burke in Michigan the year before Trey Burke made it to the national title game. Also, Tim Hardaway Jr., good NBA player. Then they beat the South Florida Bulls in the second round. Who are Ohio, South Florida in the second round of March Madness. That was a thing, ladies and gentlemen. I wonder how many people knew that when I brought it up. And once again, Ohio finds themselves as a 13 seed in the tournament. When I saw that Ohio, who was a 5 seed in the MAC, but they beat Toledo and Buffalo to win the MAC tournament, when I saw that they were matching Virginia, I'm like, oh, there's a win right there. Easy, easy. Virginia has COVID issues, and Virginia also. They're not super great at anything this season. Virginia, outside of outside of Sam Hauser, they're not really that impressive. They all, they almost lost to Syracuse in the ACC tournament. Ugh, they they really should have lost. I'm still bitter about that, but it, it, ignore that. But basically, when when it comes to when it comes to Virginia, there's nothing impressive. And Ohio is very impressive. Jason Preston, probably my favorite player in college basketball. 16.6 points per game, 6.8 rebounds, 7.2 assists, 6-4 six, guard. He's going to be an NBA player. Jason Preston w went to what well, was like you and me, went to school as a journalism student and wrote articles for a blogging website, just like I do. Got invited to an AU tournament, worked his way up through it, and found himself with offers from Ohio and Longwood. And Ohio took on Illinois, who we're both very high on, Jason Preston dropped 31 points in Ohio, only lost by two. Only lost by two. Now, I get you should look, oh, but they lost. The fact that a team like Ohio almost beat Illinois and Jason Preston dropped 31 points is insane. Dwight Wilson, 14.9 points per game. And they have Ben Vanderplas, 12.8 points. Ohio has five double-digit scores, and they also have Mark Sears, who averaged 8.7. Ohio has six legit scores. Jason Preston is a phenomenal player. He's an NBA player. He's an NBA player. And with Ohio, they play Virginia. And because I think UC Santa Barbara, who is a great all-around team in the second round, it's going to be a 13 versus 12. And I think Ohio defeats UC Santa Barbara to get to Sweet 16, where they will get destroyed by Gonzaga, but that's okay. Yeah, and I actually agree with you. I think Ohio does end up going to the Sweet 16. I think they're a team that can really make a deep run behind Preston. Preston is just so super talented. Uh, another team that I think could make a Cinderella run this year is Oregon. I think Oregon has the scoring and the three-point shooting necessary to make a run. Their matchup, if they do end up getting past VCU against Iowa, is going to be a tough matchup. Their interior defense is a little bit suspect, but if they can win a shootout and and just outshoot this Iowa team and just slow down 
Luka Garza on the inside. I think this Oregon team can make it make a run to the Sweet 16 or even the Elite Eight. Uh, I think this team has Chris Durante. He's a great leader. Uh, they have recently gotten back Will Richardson, their ball handler. He's only played 14 games this year, but he's been really good as of late. I don't think this team has great size, but their guard play and out, outside play, I think, is going to put uh, put a, a pretty good Cinderella run in if they can get through that Iowa Iowa team. I, I can agree. Oregon-Iowa is going to be a great second-round matchup. The more the more that I've talked with you and others about it off the air, the more we're going to say, hmm, the, this could be a really tough game for Iowa. I, I still think Iowa's going to win just because Luka Garza is great and Bohan and Wieskamp are still good scorers, but... It wouldn't surprise me if that game came right down on the wire. Yeah, and I, I think Luca Garza has the clear advantage of the best player. And for Oregon, it's going to be tough to stop him. I mean, they don't really have a ton of size, but if they can get that outside shooting going, I mean, they're a 38% shooting team on the year. They did struggle against Oregon State, but if they can bounce back and and come back into this tournament strong, I think this is a team that can really make a super deep run. All right, Sean, so we kind of talked about some Cinderella stories in the West. Let's move around a little bit. What are the other teams that you think could bring out a big-time upset early on in the tournament? So I think that all 12 seeds will win in the first round. Mm-hmm. Winthrop will beat Villanova, and I think Winthrop is going, is going to engage in an epic battle against Purdue. Winthrop is a high-scoring team. I just think Purdue has too much size. But Winthrop, watch out for them. If North Texas can shock Purdue, which they can, North Texas has a lot of good scoring, Winthrop can then make it to the Sweet 16. So there's Winthrop. Also, Oregon State, I think it's being Tennessee. Tennessee Tennessee really faltered down the stretch. They struggled to score, and I think that Oregon State will win. Ethan Thompson is a player to watch in this tournament. Georgetown, I think, will be Colorado, and I and obviously UC Santa Barbara recruiting. So watch out for the 12 seeds as well. Yeah, the 12 seeds are, I mean, they're facing off against some pretty rough five seeds this year. Creighton, a team that just got blown out in the Big East Championship. Villanova lost their second leading scorer, Colin Gillespie, to a torn ACL. Colorado losing in the in the big or the Pac-12 tournament to Oregon State didn't look great in that game. Uh, and then Tennessee again losing in the uh, the SEC tournament to Alabama. And they had a big-time lead on Alabama, and they couldn't keep it. That's a little worrisome when you're seeing a team uh, get that kind of lead and lose it. Um, I will say, I think Tennessee does end up outlasting Oregon State. I think they're just too physical, too talented of a team. Oregon State is on a great run, and they've shown that they can beat some really good teams. Uh, But that's the one five that I really think could end up getting through that that seed. Other than that, the other three matchups are are really 50-50 for me. They're really toss-ups. Creighton could struggle, or they can show up and be the team that, that they were against UConn. Uh, and for Georgetown, they could be the team that they've been in the Big East tournament, or they can revert back to their ways midway through the season. I will say that Winthrop over Villanova is the safest of the 12 over fives. Because mm-hmm. I, I do agree that I think Oregon State-Tennessee is the toughest one. I think that's... I, I, do, I do agree. And I think... Colorado Georgetown, we've talked about earlier, is going to be a great game, and UC Santa Barbara Creighton is going to be an intense battle as well. It will really come down to Marcus Zagorowski can be consistent or not, because he's really their go-to scorer. Well, yeah, and the consistency was lost in that Georgetown, and they just oh, it was didn't, bad. They didn't look like the same team whatsoever. No, and I mean you can't come back to that, especially this time of the year. 
You can't go cold like that. I mean, it wasn't just Zagorowski who went cold. The entire team was, I mean, just shooting bricks. At, 48 at the, points. Yeah, exactly. And and this is a good scoring team, one of the better three-point shooting teams, I mean, coming up to this game. Other, obviously, they have their inconsistencies, but when they get going, I mean, they get going. And so this is not the type of look that they want to see. And Creighton is going through some coaching issues. I mean, Greg McDermott said some pretty bad things uh, to his team uh, that got out. So they're going through some things in the locker room as well. Creighton's a team that is an iffy, iffy team going deep into the tournament. Um, let's talk a little bit about Final Fours. We only got about five more minutes left. I think we talked about you think Gonzaga is going to win the championship. So obviously there's your Final Four team in the West. But what do you think is your Final Four matchups uh, this year? So I think Gonzaga will be Texas. The, Texas has three really good guards in Matt Coleman, Andrew Jones, and Courtney Ramey. And Jericho Sim, Sims just takes care of everything inside. And looking at Texas at, uh, road, so Abilene Christian, they're, they're decent. Uh, but I think Texas wins. I think they would play Michigan State in the second round, and I think Texas is just far, it's just far better. Michigan State's good. They have beaten some really good teams, but Michigan State is pretty limited. Limited. It's just too bad they don't have Cassius Winston. Texas would play Alabama in the Sweet 16, and I'll tell you what. If you like three-point shooting, that's the game for you. There's going to be so much three-point shooting in that game. I think Texas beats Alabama because of Jericho Sims. I think Jericho Sims will have a dominant double-double in that game, leading Texas to a victory over Alabama. Yeah, and keep an eye on Kai Jones as well. He's really been very, very good as of late for this Texas team. Yes. And in the lead eight, I, because I have LSU beating Michigan, I have Florida State beating LSU in the Sweet 16, and I have a final, I have a lead eight matchup of Florida State against Texas, and I think Texas wins that because they have too much playmaking. Florida State's really good defensively. Listen, if you're filling out your bracket, I'm just going to give a free piece of advice. Don't bet against Leonard Hamilton. Leonard Hamilton almost always wins his first matchup in the tournament at least, and there's a good chance that they usually go even deep in the tournament. Leonard Hamilton always gets the most out of his players, and I think that Florida State will get to the lead eight. They're, they're kind of like the lead eight team that like no one's really talking about, I feel like, but I just think Texas has too much shooting. Florida State will not have enough in the tank after a tough win over LSU. Texas will get to the Final Four and lose to Gonzaga. And I think Illinois and Baylor will be the matchup in the other. I just, I feel like when it comes to Baylor, they have a very easy road to the Final Four. I don't, I don't think they lose to North Carolina. North Carolina is good, but Baylor's way better. Purdue has a lot of size, but what's the best counteract? What's the, what's the, what's the best counter to size? Shooting. Baylor is, is going to shoot Purdue off the court. And Ohio State, Baylor does everything that Ohio State does, but better. I think Baylor gets to the Final Four and they'll play Illinois. Now, Illinois' gauntlet, I've talked about this earlier, but it is insane. Loyola, mm -hmm. Chicago, Oklahoma State, and Houston. If these three teams were in other regions, I may have picked them to be in the Final Four. If Oklahoma State was in Michigan's region, Mich uh, Oklahoma State makes the Final Four. If if Houston was in Michigan or Baylor, I would... If Houston played Baylor, I'd pick Houston. Because Houston, because if there's one team in college basketball that matches up against Baylor perfectly, it's Houston. So that's why if Baylor plays Houston in the Final Four, Houston wins. And I would have no doubt about that because Houston is built to beat a team like Baylor. 
But because of this gauntlet, if Illinois can get out of it, which I think they will by the skin of their teeth, Illinois is going to be really Baltus, and I think Illinois would be Baylor. But Gonzaga is just too good. All right, so your final four comes down to Gonzaga, Texas, Baylor, Illinois. A couple one seeds in there, not too shabby, not too shabby. I think we actually share three of our four Final Fours teams. Uh, the only team that I have different than you is I have Houston instead of Illinois. I'm shocked. Which, the only thing is, I, I, I love this Illinois-Oklahoma State matchup. Um, I think Illinois' biggest struggle is going to be guarding a guy with the size and playmaking and and ball-handling ability of Cade Cunningham. Uh, I would assume he was a great defender, but he doesn't have the size, he doesn't have the length to, to really get uh, get out on those step back three pointers that Kate Cunningham is definitely going to bring to the to the game. I think Caleb Boone has the opportunity to take advantage of a matchup uh, against Kofi Coburn. They can stretch the floor, and that's something Oklahoma State can really do. They can they can all pretty much shoot. And against Kofi Coburn, he's not going to come out and and defend a three point shooter. So I mean that could provide some issues for this Illinois team. Yes, the the two experts that game would be Trent Frazier and Avery Anderson, basically. Basically, the supplementary pieces. It it will come down to whichever player can can hit the key shot. And I think that as crazy Avery Anderson is, and he will hit a clutch shot against Oregon State in the second round. I just think Trent Frazier will be the reason that Illinois overcomes Oklahoma State. But that that may be the game of terms as well. I think it's going to be Illinois, Lola, Chicago. I don't I don't think that there is a game in the first two weeks of the tournament that would be better than Illinois, Lola, Chicago. But Illinois-Houston possibly as well. What do you think about I know you have Oklahoma State playing Houston late eight, but what if Illinois and Houston were to face off? What do you think about that? Well, for Houston, I, I mean, they don't really have the size inside to take on Kofi Coburn, but they definitely have defenders who are willing. Uh, Justin Gorham is going to be inside. He's, he's their inside guy. He's a great defender. And they double-team the inside really well. So I like that matchup between Houston and Illinois. But for Illinois, I think that they're too... Uh, they're, they're able to do a lot of things uh, really well, and, that'll, and that's going to hurt Houston. Houston is a team that is pretty great defensively, uh, but if they, can get, uh, if they can't get their offense going, which I think Illinois can slow down this Houston offense pretty well, they have the defenders that are, are capable, I think Houston will have some trouble with Illinois. I agree. I think Illinois barely survives all these games. It, it, the Midwest region, here's the thing. If if you're trying not to watch every single game, because I, I understand that it can get draining watching every game, just focus on just focus on the Midwest region. Like that that that's my. If you just want to like only watch a few games, just focus on the Midwest region because the Midwest region is absolutely brutal. And if whoever survives is going to be battle tested, and I think whoever wins this region is going to make it to the national title game. Yeah, and almost every single one of those games is a must watch from. From the get-go, I think the only games in the entire Midwest region that aren't really good games to watch will be Illinois-Drexel and Houston-Cleveland State. But Cleveland State is good, though. Torrey Patton and Big Al Eichelberger, solid. I think Cleveland State will make it close against Houston for a time. But yeah, Illinois-Drexel is like the one guarantee. Everything else, Tennessee-Oregon State is really good, too. Well, yeah. Uh, I, I would say Clemson-Rutgers isn't really worth uh, a lot of people's time. Okay, that's disgusting. Uh, so... Make sure to keep an eye on the Midwest. Uh, but thank you very much for joining the show, Sean. Make sure to check out Sean on social media at the Candid Clark, or check him out on his website, thecandidclark.com. Uh, thank you for joining us. 
When we come back, we're going to jump back in with some NFL talk. Free agency is kicking off. We're seeing a ton of moves, so stay tuned for that. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on Jack Radio. We talked a ton of college basketball early on, but NFL free agency has begun, and there are a ton and a ton and a ton of storylines that I want to go over. The New England Patriots are the team that I really want to talk to to begin with. They have been big-time spenders this free agency, and I actually really like some of the moves that they made. Now, the first move that they made to start off free agency was bringing in Jonu Smith, and I absolutely love the fit of Jonu Smith in New England. Bill Belichick bringing in another uh, tight end is huge. Uh, This New England Patriots team has had a ton of success with tight ends in the past. Rob Gronkowski had a great career in New England before he eventually moved on uh, to go play for the Buccaneers. Uh, But this team has been great with tight ends. And for Cam Newton, he had a favorite target in Carolina. And that favorite target was his tight end, Greg Olson, for such a long time. So bringing in a tight end is a huge signing for the Patriots. The weapons that the Patriots had last season were few and far between. So Cam Newton had basically nobody to throw it to. He had former first-round pick in Keel Harry. He had Jacoby Myers. But outside of those guys, it was really nothing very good. And even with those guys, they're definitely not uh, one and two caliber receivers, at least not in this point of the career. So the signing of Jonu Smith does a great job helping give this New England Patriots team the weapons that they were missing out on last year. They also brought in Hunter Henry, another tight end, somebody who is similar in talent, a very talented tight end. His only issue that I really didn't like Hunter Henry is he's had some injury issues. He's had a hard time staying on the field. So, I mean, for the Patriots, bringing in both of these guys, it secures them at least one tight end on the field. I mean, even if Hunter Henry goes down with an injury, Jonu Smith is still there. So the tight end group now for the New England Patriots, I'm expecting them to run tons of... uh, two tight end sets, uh, tons of running with the quarterback. I mean, this is exactly the type of offense that Cam Newton can thrive in. If they can really get that running back to solidify that backfield, the Patriots will be very well put together. But offensively, the tight end position isn't the only position they addressed. They also got two wide receivers, two of the decent wide receivers on the market. Nelson Aguilar had the best year of his career last season with the Las Vegas Raiders. I mean, he struggled early on in his career uh, with the Philadelphia Eagles. He had some drops. He had a couple of issues, but he's still young, and he still has a ton of talent. And last year, he had a very good season. He played all 16 games, 82 targets, 896 yards, nine touchdowns. So very good season for Aglor. He's going to get another chance and a actual big-time contract for Aglor. He earned it. He fought his way back to... Uh, to getting as one of the the better wide receiver free agents this season. So for Aglor, he finds a new home. He gets a quarterback in Cam Newton to, to throw it to him now, and he gets another wide receiver bringing in with him is Kendrick Bourne. And Kendrick Bourne is a little bit of a questionable move in my opinion. I think he is a little under the radar. He's still young, and he's still pretty talented. He hasn't had huge seasons throughout his career, but his time in San Francisco... Uh, He did get better and better and better. 
Uh, last season, he had 667 yards, the most of his career so far. So he's coming off of a good year. Kendrick Bourne has great hands. If he can keep himself healthy and keep himself on the field, uh, this Patriots offense is completely rebuilt. And this is going to be huge for the Patriots because last season, like I said, Cam Newton had nobody to throw it to. He had just about no options uh, to go to. So now bringing in four new passing options, they're still going to have in Keel Harry. They're still going to have some really talented guys on that offensive line. Isaiah Wynn is still there. Shaq Mason is still there. Now Trent Brown is there. So the offense is very good for this New England Patriots team. I expect them to be much improved uh, as they have just continued to make big-time moves uh, throughout all of free agency. But on the defensive side of the ball, the Patriots have also made a lot of really big moves. They brought in Matthew Judon from the Baltimore Ravens. Judon has been a great pass rusher, somebody who has been able to get to the quarterback. And with the Patriots getting some guys back, getting some players back who uh, missed last season due to COVID, decided to opt it out, it's going to be a big improvement. Dante Hightower coming back alongside Patrick Chung. So now they get another pass rusher like Matthew Judon. And I mean, this Patriots defense is completely transforming. It's completely changing. The way they're playing is, is going to be completely different from last season. So Bill Belichick taking a real step forward, being a stepping up and, and becoming a GM that really he hasn't been throughout his career. He hasn't been a guy who's been a big time spender a guy who's really put a lot of money on the table. But this season, the Patriots are going in. They're spending big-time money, and I think they're going to have a better team than they did last season. They're going to be competitive in the AFC East. Obviously, the Buffalo Bills were the best team last season, uh, led by Josh Allen. But the Patriots are a more well-rounded team, a team that can really get it done, not only passing the ball, but on the defensive side. They can get after the quarterback and J.C. Jackson should be returning as long as uh, no other team goes after that second-round restriction. Uh, so the cornerback unit is going to be good. Patrick Chung is going to be back, so the, the secondary is going to be better. This New England Patriots team has the opportunity and the potential to really make a deep run, and we just know how good of a coach Bill Belichick is. He's been a great coach throughout his career. Now, we didn't see great play from Cam Newton last season. Uh, he struggled with... Not really all that many weapons to go to. 66% uh, completion percentage isn't all too bad, but for Cam Newton, he really needs to solidify that deep ball, make sure his shoulder is in the best situation possible, because at this point in time, he really doesn't have the, the healthiest shoulder. Uh, he's going through the same type of injury that Andrew Luck went through, and even though the injury was a few years ago for Cam Newton, he's still going through a pretty tough recovery, going through a pretty tough phase where he's going to have to really step up uh, and try to overcome that deep ball that he really hasn't had the last few years. Nelson Aguilar coming onto this roster, he's a deep ball receiver. He's a guy who can really get it done uh, when catching the deep ball. So I expect this Patriots team uh, to take a big-time step forward uh, this offseason. Uh, but I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, we're going to talk about more NFL free agency. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. Thank you very much for tuning in today, and make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Make sure to follow me on social medias at the underscore Cade Reed, where I post it, different updates for the show, different things like, like that. 
we had a lot to talk about early on, uh, referring to college basketball. Now we are talking some NFL free agency. The Arizona Cardinals have made a couple really big signings throughout free agency so far. Obviously, the first one that they made was bringing in J.J. Watt, trying to make sure that they can solidify that defense, solidify that pass rush, knowing that they're probably not going to bring back Hassan Reddick. So the defense has been upgraded. Now the Arizona Cardinals need to make sure to focus on the offense, and they have. They've made two big-time moves. The first one they made today was signing A.J. Green to a one-year $8.5 million deal. That deal has $6 million guaranteed, so A.J. Green is going to be the number two receiver now for this Arizona Cardinals team, and that just puts them in a very, very scary situation. They've got some great wide receivers. DeAndre Hopkins and Christian Kirk are both very capable receivers, but now we get to see A.J. Green, and who knows what's going to happen with Larry Fitzgerald. I think this move is kind of signaling that it might be sometime near the end for Larry Fitzgerald, the end of his career. Uh, AJ Green coming in doesn't bode well. They still like Andy Isabella. They still think that they can get a little bit out of Keyshawn Johnson. So I think that this move, bringing in AJ Green, does kind of solidify uh, Larry Fitzgerald's departure. And that's too bad because Larry Fitzgerald has been one of the absolute best wide receivers in all of football for a very, very long time. He's got sticky hands. He is a legend in the Arizona community, but getting up to 37 years old is tough in the NFL, especially for a position player like the wide receiver. He has had some incredibly great seasons throughout his career, and I do want to say uh, hopefully Larry Fitzgerald will keep going. I'd love to see him put the pads back on uh, and step back out onto the field, but I know I just know how difficult it'll be for somebody at his age to, to come back onto the field. He has started to go a little bit backwards as his career is starting to slow down a little bit. He's not in the same situation where he's getting 1,400 yards or 10, 15 touchdowns in a season. So for Larry Fitzgerald, this might be the best time to, to call it quits. A.J. Green is an upgrade over Fitzgerald. Even though uh, A.J. Green is getting a little bit older, Green has the experience. He's got great hands, great body control, and the size that he brings is going to be huge for this team. I think the Arizona Cardinals are just getting continually better. Next season, they're going to be a team to watch out for, for sure. With Kyler Murray as one of the best running quarterbacks in the NFL, he's going to have some real-life weapons next year. DeAndre Hopkins, obviously. Him and Christian Kirk have already been there, but bringing in A.J. Green is going to be huge. And after fixing those weapons, the big thing now for this team to do was fix the offensive line. And that is exactly what this team did. The Arizona Cardinals traded a third-round draft pick for a really great center in Rodney Hudson. Hudson has been one of the most secure centers in the NFL for a very long time, pretty much as long as he has been in the league. He has been a solid center, and he is going to head to Arizona to protect Kyler Murray. This is a big-time move for the Cardinals as they did struggle with their offensive line last year. They didn't have the best guys around, and now they're going to get a big-time upgrade in the middle of that offensive line. Kyler Murray is going to love that. Hudson has been just completely consistent. He's been great at keeping his guys clear. Derek Carr has been protected this last couple seasons. Obviously, that offensive line looks like a complete mess now, uh, but for the Arizona Cardinals, they're getting their guy. They're getting a big-time move that, that they really need to get done, and 
This team is starting to move into the right direction. Bringing in some really great talents is, is a big step. Now the Arizona Cardinals really have to kill the NFL draft because they have a couple holes that they really do need to fill. They still need some, some tackling linebackers. They still need cornerbacks. I think their cornerback units is one of the weaker ones in the NFL without Patrick Peterson. So the Cardinals still have some work to do. Obviously, they were 8-8 eight and eight last season, but I think looking at this team right now, they're a little bit better of a team than last year. I don't think J.J. Watt gives them too much of an upgrade, but A.J. Green is a big upgrade over Larry Fitzgerald and Andy Isabella, and bringing in Rodney Hudson is a huge upgrade to just about any offensive line in football. He's one of the best centers in the game. But as far as the ASC West goes, the Arizona Cardinals are making a move to try to compete. The 49ers have also been trying to make sure to keep all of their guys this offseason. The Rams have made some big moves. The Seahawks are trying to protect uh, they're trying to protect Russell Wilson. So, I mean, this NFC West has been an absolute uh, must-watch during free agency. There's just been so many moves, so many teams making these moves. Uh, and the Arizona Cardinals have been the team that has really put themselves in a good position. A.J. Green, bringing him onto this roster, I think is going to be a huge move. Uh, now, is this a Super Bowl roster? I think not quite yet. I want to see what they do during the draft, see if they can really get that defensive backs unit really figured out. I mean, A.J. Green, he could be a big improvement. He's had some really great seasons with the Cincinnati Bengals. Last season wasn't one of those. He had 523 yards. I mean, he has been kind of moving steadily backwards since 2017, but I mean, if he can return to his form, he can really get uh, back into those 1,000-yard seasons He's not going to be the guy who everybody looks at. He's not going to be that number one option. So he's going to have a little bit more uh, more room to roam, a little bit more room to, to get away from those cornerbacks. So I expect A.J. Green to really step up, have a big-time season for the Arizona Cardinals. I mean, he has the talent. Uh, back in 2017, he had 1,000 yards, and really he started his first uh, eight seasons just about with 1,000-yard seasons. The only outlier was 2016, where he was about 40 yards short of 1,000 yards. Now, since 2017, things haven't really been the same for A.J. Green. So we have to decide, is this the same A.J. Green that we're going to see uh, in 2015? Or is this a completely different A.J. Green, somebody who's getting older, who's not really as capable as they once were? I mean, he did miss the entire 2019 season with an injury. He didn't bounce back well. Uh, but again... There wasn't much talent throwing to him in Cincinnati. Cincinnati didn't have the best unit uh, last season. But for A.J. Green, he finally gets a competitive team. He gets a team to really go out there and compete. We haven't really seen him on a team that has had Super Bowl aspirations or a team that has had a deep postseason run. So for A.J. Green, I mean, this is a good move for him. He gets to go to a competitive team. It's going to be a great season for the Arizona Cardinals in the NFC West and I mean, they are a team that could really make some noise come playoff time. Kyler Murray is just an exciting player to watch. We've seen everything that he's been able to do on the uh, on the field. He's just so fast, and his arm is really great. So if Kyler Murray can put it all together, this is the year that he should really take this step forward. Last season, I projected at the beginning of the year that Kyler Murray was going to be the MVP. I don't think that was uh, the best bet last season, but... I think if you look at it this coming season, Kyler Murray has a big chance. He's got great running backs or great receivers around him and the opportunity to really take over and have a big time year um, 
with A.J. Green, DeAndre Hopkins, uh, as well as Christian Kirk. Uh, But I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I'm going to talk about a little bit more NFL free agency. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on Jack Radio. Now, we have talked a little bit about free agency. I want to talk about the remaining free agents and why the wide receiver market hasn't been moving very quickly. Now, the wide receiver market this year was supposed to be a bigger one. There's a lot of really talented receivers, a lot of guys with a lot of skill who were going to hit the open market. We're talking about guys like Curtis Samuel, uh, guys like uh, Will Fuller, who's out there right now. I mean, there's tons and tons of really good wide receivers who are out there, and we haven't really seen too many moves or too many big paychecks for these wide receivers. Now, there's definitely some receivers on the open market this year that are very good, very talented. I mean, we know that Kenny Galladay is going to be one of the top uh, wide receivers next season. He's just such a talented, talented player. But we haven't really seen a big-time value come uh, for some of the top-level guys. For Corey Davis, he signed a three-year deal for $37 million, got him about 12 and a half a year, which is right around where he was deserving uh, after a big-time fourth year, a big-time contract year. Aguilar, two years, 22. He's right around the same uh, average per year, but not the longest contracts in the books. Uh, but outside of those, we haven't really seen too many big contracts. Uh, the longest value per year is going to be AJ Green so far, who signed a one-year, uh, $6 million guaranteed contract. Uh, but as far as the other wide receivers go, there are still a ton of very talented wide receivers on the market. We're talking about Will Fuller, T.Y. Hilton, Curtis Samuel, Juju Smith-Schuster. But the word on the road is uh, that we are hearing a lot of these wide receivers wanting 10 plus million a year. And a lot of these general managers are not trying to budge on that 10 million per year number. So guys like Curtis Samuel, who are young and have shown that they have the talent, they might be looking for those contracts that they just aren't really capable of getting. So for the wide receiver market, I'm really waiting to see what happens down the line. I mean, there still are some very, very talented wide receivers on the market that haven't even really gotten uh, their names heard all that much. I mean, what is Antonio Brown going to do? Who's going to give him a big-time contract? I mean, his character off the field is going to affect that. And for Antonio Brown, he might be one of the most talented wide receivers on the market this year. But because of the market, he might be on the raw end of the deal and not really get a good contract, something that he's really looking for. Uh, But the guy who I'm really surprised has not been taken off the market yet, has not really gotten a big-time offer yet, is Kenny Galladay. Kenny Galladay has been one of the fastest big wide receivers in all of the NFL. He has proven that he is a very talented receiver, and right now it's kind of a tough prospect trying to get a big-time deal. Now, his average market value according to spot rack is about 17 million dollars per year and if they wanted to if a team wanted to sign him that's really right around the range where they're going to have to to pay up five years 85 million something similar to what michael thomas signed 
just a few years back. Something similar to what Odell Beckham Jr. signed just a few years back. And even though it is a bad season, Kenny Galladay should still be looking for money. And I think he should still be very deserving of a big-time contract. Uh, he's one of the best wide receivers in the NFL. He's just got an insane amount of talent. And even though he hasn't been on a very good team throughout his career, he still put up some really big numbers. Last season, he wasn't great. He wasn't the best last season. Only uh, only a couple yards, 200 and... Uh, or 338 yards, excuse me, but that was only in five games played. So he didn't really get to see all of Kenny Galladay, but throughout the other two seasons, the last two seasons before, he had 1,000 yards both of those seasons. He's looked like he's been moving in the right direction. I expect a deal to come for Kenny Galladay, but again, I just don't know if it's going to be at the price tag he wants or the price tag that he deserves. And with the salary cap the way it is this year, we're going to see a lot of guys who aren't getting the type of money that they deserve. I mean, for example, Marlon Mack just re-signed with the Indianapolis Colts for one year, $2 million. And that's just a prove-it deal, but Marlon Mack was a guy who was looking like a future starting running back in the NFL before he ended up going down with an injury last season. Now he's coming back into his free agency year, and nobody was really biting. He only got a $2 million deal, a pretty small deal for a guy of his talent, and I think it's going to continue to look like this. A lot of one-year deals for some really talented guys, for some of those uh, those guys who want to get a big-time extension, who want to get a big-time deal, but don't want to necessarily risk having to take a big pay cut when the, the market should be better next season. And like I've said in previous shows, the salary cap this year at $182.5 million is way below the $198 million it was last season. And these teams are preparing for the salary cap to continue to go up. So teams were preparing for a salary cap number looking right around uh, $200 million, $205 million, something around that range, uh, but above $198 million where it was last season. But since coronavirus, the revenue was down for the NFL. They ended up losing a ton of money, and $182 million is what they settled on. That's not going to be able to be enough to pay all of these different teams and all of these different players. And... A lot of these teams have figured out their cap situations. A lot of these teams are starting to uh, to, to get together and get uh, below the cap. The New Orleans Saints, for example, are at about negative $8 million in cap right now. They have a little bit more that they got to do, but they've done a good job of getting to that position, getting to that spot. Drew Brees retiring is going to really help with that. Uh, I know Drew Brees wasn't really a, a guaranteed retire, but he is going to retire. He's going to end his career here. Uh, so congratulations to Drew Brees. He was a great quarterback. He did a great job for the New Orleans Saints for such a, such a long time. Uh, so I expect him to just have a, uh, a tremendous career moving forward. Um, but moving forward for the Saints, they've got to find a new solution at quarterback, whether it be Jameis Winston, whether it be somebody like Taysom Hill. There's going to have to be some sort of deal that gets done. Right now, Taysom... Hill is the higher-paid quarterback. He's getting paid a pretty good amount of money. Um, but Jameis Winston has had that starting experience. He's had the talent. He's a former number one overall draft pick. I expect him to be uh, somebody that has a uh, an opportunity in New Orleans. But now that they've figured out their salary cap situation, we have to kind of look at this in a, in a, uh, a little upset way because New Orleans is, they figured it out for this year. 
They look good. They look like their salary cap is going to be fine for this year. But then if we took a, take a look at next year, they're in a pretty rough situation already. They only have $40 million in cap space next season, and that is before they sign a good chunk of their team. They have a lot of moves left to do to get ready for next season. So, I, I mean, the, the New Orleans Saints have really put themselves in the toughest situation going forward. They are a team that really has messed up their cap situation in the next few years. I mean, in 2023, they have a $25 million cap hit for Michael Thomas, a $23 million cap hit for Cameron Jordan. This is going to be a tough situation to come out of. I'm not sure what the New Orleans Saints are going to do, but, I mean, this is going to be something that haunts them for years and years to come. This New Orleans Saints team was a Super Bowl contender for as long as we can remember, but now that they've had to move all of their contracts back later in years, yeah, they're in a pretty tough situation. Uh, but that's going to do it for Up for Debate today. Thank you all very much for tuning in. And make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports only on KJAC Radio. I will see you guys next on Friday to talk about the start of March Madness. See you all then.